Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Natasha Nell. Natasha is the VP of Growth Marketing at Hacker Noon, a massive tech publication. We talked about their content operations and editorial strategy. They work with some 20,000 contributors to publish somewhere in the area of 26,000 to 27,000 pieces per year. Absolutely insane. We also cover the trade-offs of clickbait and authenticity, journalism, how to become a great copywriter, what Natasha has learned about interviewing as well as automating podcast operations, and much, much more. If you want to learn what content ops looks like at massive scale, this is this conversation won't disappoint. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Natasha now. want to start out high level and this is I don't usually do this but what what is Hacker Noon? How do you describe Hacker Noon and their mission? Great question. So Hacker Noon is how hackers start their afternoons according to the tagline. Basically we publish great tech stories. That's what we exist to do. And anybody can submit a story to Hacker Noon, which is pretty cool. It makes us the most decentralized tech publication on the internet. As far as I know, we have a global community of now probably about 20,000 writers who, you know, submit stories of their own volition, uh, unpaid, uh, just because it's great to document work that you do, expertise that you gain, knowledge that interests you, rabbit holes that you've gone down. So we provide a platform for people specifically in the technology industry to blog, basically. How much of that, you said there's some like uh, guest writers and contributors who just do it for the love of the game. How much of it is that versus like in-house people or like paid freelancers? Like, do you have, do you have some sort of a split there? The large majority is our contributors who submit completely of their own free will, as mentioned. So about 20,000 people globally. Internally, if we have time, we aim as a as a team to publish probably a story a month, uh, maybe two, three stories a month of uh, those on the marketing or content team. The broader team is obviously always encouraged to publish as often as they can, and particularly to just use the platform. But the majority of everything that you read on Hacker Noon is submitted by people who are real human beings working in the tech industry and writing about their experiences and the things that they're learning. That's wild. So you, um, you're the VP of growth marketing right now. That's right. But before you were uh, editorial strategy? That's right. That's a funny story. So we have only recently had the need for this VP level of leadership at Hacker Noon. Seen a lot of growth in the last year. So three of us kind of were promoted to that level uh, in growth, editorial, and in sales or business development. And I spent a year doing editorial and my colleague Lee Mark uh, in Japan, Tokyo, spent a year doing growth. And at the end of the year, we kind of said, do you want to swap job titles? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> because there was just a lot of overlap, right? And that just speaks to Hacker Noon's uh, totally flexible culture. There was a lot of overlap in our work. And I think it just made sense for both of us to uh, formalize going in, in, the, in those directions. And it was just something 
fun to try for this year. So <laughs> I am now the VP of growth. I have always kind of been a, a content marketer uh, in my copywriting career. got a lot of that experience. Um, my title being editorial uh, VP of editorial strategy really just spoke to Hacker Noon's mission to be the best place for tech professionals to publish and read and learn about technology. So yeah, it was a great experience, but I'm happy to be focused now on more product marketing and content marketing initiatives. That's so cool. I, I when I was in house, uh, say HubSpot, like I always had this fantasy that I could go almost like job shadow. Like I, I'm like, all right, I'm doing kind of acquisition and growth right now. But what if I had gone down the path of product management or data science, like these kind of like fringe right. interests of mine, and to be able to you know play different roles at different times in the company's growth, which you can do as a startup founder. Say like during the agency, you know, I can play podcast host for six months or salesperson for six months. But that's crazy and cool that you can do that at Hacker Noon. So what was what was the transition like? Like what do you um what what's changed the most about your day to day? Right. So we've taken over respectively the uh, marketing and editorial weeklies. So I've had to switch around to managing the workflow of the marketing team, which includes our community manager, now community managers. Uh, designer, the interns who are on the marketing team as well, our podcast, new podcast host, Amy Tom. Uh, we have a campaign manager, project manager. So taking over that, that flow um, and kind of instituting a new system and a new approach for 2022, that has been what I've been focused on this month is a lot of planning, a lot of setting down product marketing prioritization frameworks, setting up systems in Notion, um, figuring out what needs to be done uh, documentation-wise, making sure that we've got everything laid out and set up so that when the product team deploys new features, we have kind of our tactics and our content marketing levers ready to pull, ready to go, and that machine is, is running well. So that's been my focus uh, since the switch. And what was it like when you were running editorial? Um, was that mainly maintaining quality control, your inflow and outflow of writers? Like what what was uh, what was that job tasked with? Right, a lot more quality control, setting the editorial guideline, making sure that the stories that we publish meet a certain standard. So Hackanoon exists in this really fascinating space between kind of you know, um, somewhere where you can self-publish, like I guess LinkedIn stories. Um, or, and somewhere where there is editorial review and, and kind of that gatekeeping of quality. Right. So that's a, it's a weird place between social media and quality journalism, because there are a team of trained editors who make sure that all the stories that get submitted, they all go through review. They are all made, made to be, highest quality blog posts. Otherwise they get rejected. You know, a large majority of the stories that get submitted to Hacker Noon do get rejected. So there is a high bar for quality. And in editorial, I spent a lot of time maintaining that line, defining that line, communicating that line to our 20,000 global contributors, trying to improve and retain them as writers, as well as doing a lot of fun inspiration type work, like improving the team's ability to craft new headlines, uh, our understanding of how to do things like meta descriptions, how to use tags properly, 
how to optimize for search, those kinds of things. So yeah, switching up now to more of a marketing focus is quite the change. How do you write a good headline? Oh, <laughs> how many ways can you skin a cat? I think there are, yeah, there are a couple of formulas, right? I mean, I follow a lot of very good copywriting blogs that purport to say that there are going to be only really six or seven or eight ways to write a headline on the internet these days. And it's going to be your numbered listicle, your kind of like curiosity gap, um, you know, try these things or this thing is something you need to know, um, you know, benefits, problem kind of formulas, constructions. At the end of the day, I'm starting to move much more towards a very factual, very descriptive kind of I start there. What is the story really about? Uh, and try and separate from this very clicks-driven approach because I just think, particularly at Hacker Noon, we are trying to not contribute more noise to the, you know, in, an endless stream of clickbait that's out there. So really just first question is what is the story about and how do we describe that in the most simplistic and honest and real terms, you know, so that no user who clicks through, no reader who clicks through will be disappointed or in any way feel tricked or, you know, sold in some way. How do you do that? Then once you've got that base level description, can you bring in maybe something that's a little bit pop culture intertextual a reference from something that is relevant to the current zeitgeist culturally. That's my number one trick. I like to make sure that where possible, if I can bring in, you know, the relevant, you know, Squid Game, for example, was a huge one because mm. you knew that everybody was watching it. Can you somehow relate <laughs> your headline to something that goes on in there, you know, jokes wise, memes wise, can you bring in a humor and a relevant culture? points. So that would probably be my number one headline writing hack. If I could bring in something that everybody's talking about uh, from the cultural landscape, then I think that's uh, guaranteed to, to get some attention. Does the editorial team at Hacker Noon rewrite most of the headlines or are you trying to train and, and basically take in the headlines that writers give you? We tried recently, this is a great story to illustrate this point. We tried recently to launch a verified writers program so that writers could self-publish and they would mm. sort of, you know, get like a little tick of, of authentication, authentication, and they could be skipping the writers, the editorial queue and go straight to self-publishing their work, which was, I thought, going to be a great benefit. And the surprising result was a lot of them coming back to us and saying, but we really want the editorial team to help us out, particularly on the headlines. You guys do it so well, so we don't want to lose that benefit and we want to keep our stories in the queue and we're, we're willing to wait for the reviews on that. So that was a pretty cool learning. And yeah, so the answer to your question is we do rewrite most of the headlines, particularly if it's republished content. We obviously prefer original content, but a lot of people use Hacker Noon to promote their newsletters, their blogs, they republish stuff so uh you know our brands are all republishing content from their blogs that's a paid service but it's republished content nonetheless so then we need to retitle it for seo purposes as well mm, so this this is like the syndication part of things kind of like business to community and, and other sites too totally yeah and what percentage of the content is syndicated versus original 
Good question. I wonder what is the percentage on that? I wouldn't say that it's more than 5% at this mm. stage. We have a very successful brand as author program and uh, we're, we're recently relaunching the kind of brand dashboard to allow for a lot of our other opportunities to work with Hackanoon. You know, we do site banners, we do all kinds of things. We've just recently launched very successful writing contests. So you can partner with Hackanoon and, and we actually run a contest whereby it's a very big win-win because the sponsor provides cash prizes and we get quality content that people generate in order to win those cash prizes. So um, those are and just another way that we are, we're monetizing the experience, but definitely 95% of the content you read on Hackanoon is unpaid. Gotcha. Um, question on the editorial vision. So you've got 20,000 contributors. You've got this massive inflow of content. How do you, like, how do you maintain an editorial vision at Hackernoon in, in terms of like what topics and what narrative and what pieces you're, you're choosing in the first place. Like, do you have, I guess you have pillars of, you know, kind of areas that you write about mainly in tech. Um, so people are going to pitch something within that wheelhouse. And if it's outside, you can reject it right away. But how much of that is, all right, we're going to take something that's interesting and we don't know what it is until we see it versus here's what we know we want to write about. And we're, we're going to try to work with these writers to get that piece published. Definitely. We have the broadest line ever in that you can't submit anything that's about tech. And these days, what can't you make about tech, right, in the world? So people can really submit any story under the sun. Our editorial line is guided more by things like making the internet a better place. So being open, uh, both with your ideas and quite literally open sourcing your projects and writing about that and, and you know, promoting open source projects. So those kinds of more broader decentralization philosophies guide the team and guide the way that we think about the internet and how we want to contribute to it. But in terms of what we'll publish, really anything that's that's high enough quality that really adds value, that's educational, entertaining, interesting, newsworthy, topical, and related to technology, we'll publish it. This is such a cool approach. See, you don't have like a list of 200 keywords that you're trying to assign to people. Not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like there. you said there is some tie-in with SEO though, right? Like you're going to do a little bit of post post editorial optimization like if somebody pitches either a syndicated piece or an original piece there is an SEO strategy for sure yeah i mean the lion's share of our traffic uh does come from organic sources so we're very conscious of uh, making sure that that gets the attention it deserves particularly in the last year and in terms of training up the editorial team it's been fairly easy to do uh, you know, just understanding keyword research and even when we're busy, just making sure that basic good habits are instilled. Like even if you're super busy and you need to spend 10 minutes improving a story that's basically there and good to go and you need to publish something now, um, you know, then the, what are the basic things that you need to do? Can you do a quick Google search of what you presume to be the keyword of the story? Check people also ask, check what suggestions come up, check the related searches at the bottom and make sure that the tags and the meta descriptions, your H1s, H2s are all optimized for that, you know, basic kind of stuff that everybody can do. Even our junior editors can understand and move forward with in a speedy amount of time. Um, that, that's kind of the base level training and definitely a priority for our editors. 
Gotcha. <clears throat> and apologies for bringing this down to such a nitty gritty level, but um, editorial wise, like if if I wanted to publish a piece, like right, I, I would pitch pitch something. So maybe I don't know how that pitch process works. Is that you, you just send a topic idea or do you have to have the, the article done or what's that like? Yeah. So you, you send in a completed article, you create a Hackanoon account first step, right? So create this free Hackanoon account, fill in your profile, couple of details, little bio, maybe integrated with your social links, do whatever you want to do, add a profile picture or don't. Um, and then you'll gain access to the sort of submission portal and create a new draft, write it up, add a featured image integrated with Unsplash, of course, and all the other image platforms, hit the submit button, and then it goes into the queue for our editors and we review that content to either be published or rejected. And I'm guessing before I, I submit that, like you've given some editorial guidelines, submission guidelines, word counts, stuff like that. Totally. All of that is accessible at our help.hackanoon documentation. A lot of the people who submit to Hackanoon already have a high level of familiarity about what we publish and kind of how to hit that, uh, in my experience. I guess they're they're mostly readers and that's how they get there and understand that they could too also be submitting content content to Hackanoon. So yeah, the documentation is kind of in the dashboard and you can click through, but for the most part, people are submitting and we're educating them by communicating directly in the notes function and the comments function uh, in app and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that was going to be my next question is like, let's say I publish that draft or, or not publish, but like send it to y'all and it's 90% of the way there. And there's some SEO work that could be done. Is that something that y'all kind of go through like this back and forth revisions with, or you just kind of like take that upon yourself. So like, you know, change the title tag, change the H2s and all that stuff. The things that you've all listed, we will that we will do uh, for sure. It's only really when there's an issue with things like citation, or if people didn't pass the plagiarism check on plagiarism, a paragraph yeah. or two. Um, if there's if there's a better angle, if something feels a little bit out of date, if we want to add a case study or an example, if we feel like that kind of more qualitative improvements could be made to the article that require the writer's inputs then we will leave comments and ask, but the rest of those kinds of small changes we'll do and hope that the writer will learn from seeing it published and do do next time. Otherwise, it takes us a couple of seconds, so we'll, we'll take care of things like tags and images and those kinds of things. Gotcha. Um, for Scope, how many articles are you publishing per, per year? Oh, great question. So the... I'm going to do some very, very quick maths here. So we're looking at about 26, 27,000. That's insane. That's right? such a high scale. It's pretty great. Yeah, we're pretty proud of, of what we've managed to achieve and how engaged our community is. And in terms of monetization, you mentioned syndication. Uh, that's paid service. How else do you do you monetize the content? So in terms of how writers can monetize their content, you can integrate. We have uh, integration with Coil where you can set up a wallet and you can receive micropayments mm -hmm. for read time. Uh, that's just something that's, that we exist for our writers. But in terms of how Hackanoon keeps the lights on, if that's what you're asking, I'm not 100% sure mm -hmm. that it is. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, you can check out uh, sponsor.hackanoon.com. It's basically a, a, a full 
uh, list of all the ways in which um, we monetize <laughs> our sites. But essentially, you've got brand as author, which is submitting branded content. You've got ad by tag, which is by our content pages, by the sort of specific buckets like, you know, AI, robotics, blockchain, Bitcoin, machine learning, whatever it might be. You can put ads on those pages to target more specific audiences. You can sponsor any one of our growing number of newsletters. Uh, you can sponsor the podcast. Uh, so mainly we're, we're monetizing content, as you say. My immediate thought, um, the ad model makes so, so much sense there um, and some interesting micropayments and um, uh, specific sponsorships too. My immediate thought with all that organic traffic and you know, 26,000 blog posts is like, if you just put affiliate links, you know, <laughs> like any post that mentioned a software product, I feel like at that scale, that would actually work out, which I don't know, I, I guess that gets into a whole slew of like editorial and, and ideology and like what you want to promote problems. Yes, it does indeed. And that is a constant struggle is trying to maintain the quality and avoid <laughs> the affiliate links that a lot of people try to sneak into their submissions. We've caught a lot of people paying or offering um, to, to get published on Hackadoon for payments. And it does lead to an immediate ban from the community. So I do not regret doing a little side business of getting paid to publish on Hack and Noon. It's free and it always will be, except for brands and partners and trusted people in the tech industry that we work with. So, yeah, no sneaky backlink marketers welcome. Yeah, and if somebody puts an affiliate link, that's an immediate red flag. It is. They get kind of one or two warnings from uh, my colleague Lee Mark now on editorial. We call him the ban hammer. So uh, he'll send a strongly worded email and, and you'll get banned from the community. It's not a perfect system, uh, but it, it, it works so well for us so far. Yeah. Um, what are you doing with the podcast? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So during the early days of lockdown, I kind of convinced uh, the leadership team at Hackanoon to revive the Hackanoon podcast, which had kind of been lying dormant for a little while. Um, just to, I don't know why actually, but we picked it up again and it was such a fun experience for me to kind of learn to do. I guess my first comments on podcasting is if you're not doing it, why not? Mm. You know, there's such a low barrier to entry, um, really easy setup. So Googleable, like just figure it out. You know, what do you need to buy? What do you need to do? Um, relatively easy to set yourself up. And once that's done, there's a thousand platforms, you know, uh, that are really great that now offer even, you know, audio integration with Spotify and things like that. It's so easy to get music. That kind of thing is just taken care of. We use a great transcription app that, you know, means that every blog post, I mean, sorry, every podcast is a lengthy blog post that can be, you know, used in multiple ways. Do you so, publish that on, yeah, on Hacker Noon as well? You just uh, do this we transcript do, and we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. And is and, that web.com, by the way? Or do you no, use we're one? using Descript. Descript, yeah, yeah, yeah. Descript yeah. is awesome. It's so awesome. I turned my voice into an AI robot uh, using Descript. I had to read like 45 minutes worth of scripts, feed it to the machine, and then it turned me into a, into 
you know, kind of a voice that would respond so I could create a podcast by typing a Word document kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Typing the scripts and and then my AI version of me would read it. It was really great. It's not perfect, obviously, but it's totally listenable, I feel like. (laughs) It's the future. (laughs) That is one of those products that feel like magic. Right. It feels like magic. And then you're just like, wait, what is my job? And is it safe? <laughs> it's like right. one of those meta Between moments. that and GPT-3 and AI-generated content, it is a little concerning. Right. Totally. The other day I was reading a newsletter and I was getting through about three par- paragraphs of a really inspiring story based on the Martian, which is a movie. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen it. I have yeah. not. Apparently, Matt Damon stranded alone on Mars. But, I, you know, this writer was making this really great analogy about how we need to have the same level of optimism that Matt Damon had on Mars alone, you know, just pushing through. And I was really getting sucked into the story. And then he said, okay, pause there. I need to tell you that Jarvis AI just wrote that entire newsletter and you've been reading wow. something that it just, That's I was not amazing. ready for that twist. <laughs> and again, you know, writing newsletters is something I love doing and then they're coming for us. They're coming for us, but I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be fine. Uh, we'll be fine. Where were we? That was a tangent. podcast podcast. So <laughs> podcast. you revamped the podcast, relaunched that. And you were talking about how everybody should do this. Um, because the tools are there. It's so simple to set up. Exactly. So simple to set up. So we set it up. I kind of had this full circle moment, turned myself into a robot. And then we decided to hire a full-time podcast host and a full-time editor so that we could scale it to three episodes a week with the vision of one of them being a sponsor episode uh, where we actually start to interview some of the great brands and and companies that we work with and create content that's kind of almost entirely dedicated to them, obviously also as a lead generation tactic. And then the second episode was a This Week on Planet Internet roundup of all the cool things that the team internally had read or talked about or seen on the internet that week. It was really fun to do. Uh, we kind of rotated guests on the team and just went through everybody's search history already and had good debates about things. And then the other one was always an interview with either a contributor or somebody who had come forward and said they'd wanted to be interviewed on the podcast or somebody that we've looked up and found interesting. So that was the structure. We've since dropped this week on Planet Internet because it wasn't seeing the returns that we wanted and it was taking up too much of the team's time, setting up that schedule so we've now dropped back down to two week, two episodes a week. We find that sustainable, but we've seen steady organic growth. I mean, when I say organic, everything except for YouTube, obviously you've got to pay for views on YouTube, just how mm-hmm. it works. But everywhere else we've seen really steady organic growth, which is pretty good for relatively relaxed inputs. And a really enjoyable thing to create and something that is so fun to markets. I mean, we're making audiograms, you know, like really getting down with all the cool kid formats on how to promote a podcast. It's just been really great to experiment and learn how how to do that. What, what have you tried um, in terms of promoting the podcast and growing it? That's one area that I'm still thinking through with, with our own podcast. Right. So as I said, the transcript kind of formed our central uh 
link or URL because we don't want to link out to an external platform on which we were hosting at the time. Um, obviously, we bought hackernoon.podcast or whatever, but we still wanted to keep it all at the blog because that's where we keep everything that's the center of Hackernoon. So, and text content, we are, always will be a primarily text driven, um, content driven platform, you know. So, kind of generated this massive transcript, had a great blog post about it, kind of summarizing it with timestamps. And then that got broken down into posts that would be on social media probably for the for a month, at least mm-hmm. a month's worth of daily reminders of, hey, there's this podcast episode, obviously alternating with whatever else came out, but just taking different little snippets of audio, creating little audiograms that people can t- listen to in app. I'm, I'm a firm believer that social media shouldn't actually be used to try and get people out of the app because you're fighting a losing battle there. So just keep them there listening to your one minute post if you can, or your, you know, 15 second story, just try and keep them there with an interesting snippet of audio with text always. Cause you never know if they're listening in a place where they can't use audio so, yeah, we kind of just figured all of that out as we went along. And uh, other than that, didn't do too much, to be honest. Counted on the on the audience that, that Hackernoon.com has and their curiosity about the platform. But exciting news is that we do have, we're exploring other ways to use audio and incorporate audio. So, of course, we've followed suit of many brands and instituted a, a reader a reader up top of the stories so that you can listen to stories as well. And writers can in fact download that audio. They've decided to give ownership of those audio snippets of stories to the writers so they can do with it what they want. And we're very soon going to be launching an app that also features those audio stories that, that you can listen to take stories on the go. So, Sorry, so yeah, this, this reader app, exciting. this is this is just uh you take an article and it, it reads verbatim the article or what is this? That's right, exactly that. Yeah. And does the author it read little... it or is that AI or how does that work? It's AI. It's AI. We've got like four or five characters to choose from. We're writing little character backstories for each one of them. It's gonna be really fun. So yeah. That's awesome. Have have you seen impact or engagement with the audio format of, of your tech stories? Absolutely. Somebody just posted in Slack the other day about the success of that and how many how many clicks it's getting. So a lot of people are clearly using it, which is exciting. We're gonna have to try that one. That's an awesome idea. For sure. Take it, um, run. <laughs> nah, that's also the benefit of doing podcasts is you, you get to talk to smart people and hear what other people are doing and, and take the ideas that um, seem interesting. So it just gives you a lot of exposure. Absolutely. Agreed. Did you, um, you mentioned that you hired a full-time podcast host and editor. Um, did you, before that, did you host any or how did, how did that work before you uh, brought on the full-time host? Yeah. So before that, it was exclusively me. I probably did a, a prob- nine, 10, 11 episodes maybe. Um, and in fact, at the time, I was running the annual internet awards that Hackernoon does on the side, which is just a massive campaign called the Noonies. It takes a lot of resources. It's really worth it, but it's huge. So I figured out a way to kind of cheat the system and i encouraged everybody who was nominated in the noonies which is like 2000 people at least to send me voice notes 
answers to questions that I had set up under certain themes. So I sent, for example, one list of questions that was about AI and one list of questions that it was about processes and software developments and another list of questions that it was about predictions for the future. And I encouraged them to send them, send me these voice notes neatly labeled according to which question and which category they'd answered. And then I hacked together using pre-recorded sort of intro that I had written based on people's answers to make it occasionally sound like it was an interview, but or just a collection of a conversation that was cleverly edited together. But it allowed me to not have to schedule a thousand interviews. Um, and always try to find, you know, opening and openings in people's time slots. So I just kind of sent out this mass email, encouraged everybody to send me a voice note, and got responses from fifteen people, I think, in the end, and made ten solid podcasts out of that. So that was a, a segments of episodes that I managed to pretty much automate and only do editing time with. So that was a pretty big win in my book. But in terms of actually hosting, yeah, I probably did about 10 or 11 interviews, really enjoyed it. Okay. I got a couple questions there then. So with the asynchronous uh, question and answer, you, you take a lot of um, variables out of the equation and, and you kind of boil it down to just good questions and just good answers. Um, there's less of a, a improvisation going on. So what did you learn through that process about what makes a good question? And um, as a corollary, what, what makes a good podcast answer? Ooh, great question. What makes a good question? I mean, there's the usual answers, open-ended. It's got to be open-ended, right? It's always got to lead to more and to thinking. And I think questions that always encourage the the second part, if that makes any sense. So questions that will ask for a case study or an example or a tell me about a time that mm. you experienced this. So encouraging storytelling or asking for a story uh, instead of just a flat answer or opinion, I think is always a good strategy when it comes to asking questions. And then as for the answers, what were the most interesting answers and how did you distinguish between like, oh, this is kind of drab and this is, wow, this is fascinating. We're definitely going to put this in the episode. Right. And I got a lot of both. Let me tell you, it was interesting. <laughs> there were so clearly people who work in marketing just knew how to package an idea and get through the like kind of problem benefits solution kind of formulas were just so clear, you know, but other people just went on and on and on. And it was, it was long editing work. I, I remember, um, trying to get through that. So I think to answer your question, of course, <laughs> the opposite of what I'm doing, be concise, get right to the point. That's always a good strategy. And if you can, end your answer with something that leads to another question or at least places a question in the reader's mind. That's also a good strategy. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sure like the answer thing is so dependent on the personality too, right? 
Because I've had, um, there's people, I, I wouldn't call it concise, but there's people who seem to speak in prose and it's like, they come out with metaphors and analogies and just like very like frameworks on the spot. I'm like, I don't know how you do that. Um, and then there's people that don't do that, but they're like wildly opinionated. And it's, it's like watching this fireworks show and you're just like, just, just talk. Let's, let's just keep this rolling, you know? So there's sure. all various styles. And I feel like, you know, if you're the certain type of person, you can pull this one off, but maybe not that one off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So what did you learn about running interviews in real, real time? And how was that different from the asynchronous process? Should I have sent you a list of questions before this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's a great point. I think for me, yeah, when it comes to the more factual, it's like an occupational hazard. It's definitely an occupational hazard now that I think about it. When I hear a question like that, I immediately think of the listicle that or the many listicles that already exist out there online with, you know, these kind of formulaic responses to kind of how to set up an interview question or how to respond to something. And it's difficult for me to separate that out in my brain from what I know, what is my lived experience of actually running interviews. I find that to be quite challenging, I'm realizing. I know, I'm always trying to balance the best practice with the avant-garde and the experimental, right? It's like trying to find what works, but also what is innovative for me, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I would call myself an expert interviewer by no means. I definitely think that being present is the key to everything in life, really. You just, anything that you do with full attention and managing to stay in the room and hold and hold the kind of space that it takes, which a lot of us don't do, right? We're looking at our phones, we're looking at other things constantly. Our minds are, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had about... 10, eight out of, <laughs> let's say eight out of 10 friends uh, diagnosed with some form of ADHD in mm-hmm. the last year. It's just to me a natural response of our current times. And I think that in an interview in particular, um, as long as that you, you can stay present and you don't get too caught up, as you say, don't send that preset list of questions. It's just going to limit you. Don't get too caught up in the list of topics that you need to cover. Just let things flow and stay really present and in the room, respond to what's happening. That's such a trained skill. I think it's been so much harder during the pandemic. I've, I've had to actively set um, like phone and app limits because yeah. <laughs> it's like before I was like busy, you know, traveling and going out and doing things. And now it's like, oh, I've got a moment of downtime. I'm going to look at Twitter or I'm going to look at Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that attitude starts to infiltrate other areas of your life. So especially podcasting, it's, it's almost been a Zen exercise because I can't do that. Right. It's, it's full of focus, which yes. is um, I think you get so rarely nowadays. Absolutely. And I, I noticed you didn't mention TikTok, which means you haven't yet uh, discovered the great <laughs> job. Keep it that way. Let me tell you, it's not good. It's not good for humanity. It's, We're it playing might with mind drugs with all this stuff. And that one seems like the heroine of, of the social media apps, right? It's like the, <laughs> the, the most effective at what they want to do, which is capture attention. Perfect. Absolutely. Perfect analogy. Are you in TikTok? Yes, I definitely. I mean, I felt I had to doing what I do. I felt like I needed to understand this new drug as, as you put it so perfectly. And um, yeah, I have had to set limits. 
And I've started <laughs> tracking my screen time in Notion as a result. It's the most addictive thing I've ever experienced. And I am not a person who normally, you know, can't control her scrolling. But that algorithm, you got to be so careful what you feed it. It knows you better than you know yourself. There's always this uh, bifurcation to me between um, the the moral um, implications of these things and the opportunist uh, opportunities for marketers. Right? This is this goes down to like um, even Google search results. Like if you can rank for this with bad information, should you? You know? And like there's all these different things you can do to command attention. Like you talked about clickbait. But like, just because it does work doesn't mean you should do it. So I do think about the opportunity with TikTok, right? If the attention there is so much more focused, if, if there's so much more uh, mindshare on TikTok, like, is there an opportunity for marketers? Is that something you've thought yeah. about or explored with Hacker Noon or, or even just yourself? Absolutely, we have. It's interesting how brands are using TikTok because you've got to really find the right balance between being a brand and owning that and not being an annoying brand who's trying not to be a brand because people mm-hmm. are allergic to that but speaking to opportunities versus you know moral obligations i don't know if you've read this uh really great book it's called uh offline matters by jess henderson no i haven't heard it's of it. basically yeah it's pretty great it's it's pitched as the less digital guide to creative work and it's basically a manifesto for really thinking stopping and thinking about this endless machine that we are a part of as content people and kind of what we're contributing to um and her central argument i guess is that everyone is bored and everyone is boring which is kind of like or everything online is boring as well which is what i've always said about writing like if you're bored then so is the reader, right? So mm-hmm. we've got into this like cycle of needing to produce so much so often that often we're not writing real meaningful stuff, of course, right? Um, we're being held hostage by the algorithm and the need to feed it. And nowhere is that more true than on TikTok. It, it demands this constant attention and you won't get views unless you're posting four videos a day minimum kind of thing i don't even know what the latest number (laughs) is but it's it's a lot you know you need to hire a full-time person like like we hired a full-time podcast host i would argue that you definitely need a full-time person if not two on that channel so it's resource intensive and it as you say has definite moral dilemma kind of material in terms of how addictive it is but duolingo ryanair there's some brands that are doing such great and hilarious work and i can just picture the person who's behind that content just really feeling good about themselves when they fall asleep at night because they're making people laugh in very real and kind of cool ways duolingo sounds like the perfect uh opportunity for well any social but tiktok in particular and i've heard about like excel experts like making millions on TikTok, you know, just like these educational videos. So I assume, I mean, there is some benefit to these things, but um, yeah, my concern as like a consumer is it feels like what was clickbait five years ago wouldn't even register as interesting today. And it's like, there's this never ending arms race to just produce more and more stimulating content, you know? And it's like, then when I go try to read a book, I'm like, I can't even my mind can't even focus on, you know, 20 pages. So I just worry about it from that perspective. If it's like, 
if I can only spend time on Twitter, like there's certainly educational content on Twitter, but it's so bite-sized. Like, am I actually getting the full benefit? Like I used to with books. Definitely so. not. Definitely not. Yeah. There's another great book called the every out. It's a fiction. It's about like uh, basically Amazon and Facebook merge in this dystopian future. And in that mm-hmm. future books get abolished because you can't track the success metrics of books. So of course, you know, paper books get entirely abolished because they can't figure out where people are dropping off if they're buying paper books. So everybody needs to be reading electronically so that you can optimize the content of books in this terrible future where there are no paper books, which I thought was a really good observation. But there are a lot of brands rejecting Facebook ads, right? Like Patagonia, I think, did that. There was another one, Ben and Jerry's, moved their advertising budgets off of Facebook entirely because of, again, these moral sort of dilemmas. So I don't know, that thought of doing that terrifies me. I, I feel like, what, what, ha- what are you, yeah, <laughs> you'll get taken completely away from vision. How do you, I mean, brands like that are huge, so they can afford it, but. Yeah, I don't know how that makes you feel, but it's it makes me stop and think. Yeah, I mean, I like that there's a backlash, but I do think there is a certain imperative to play the game if you're not in that position already, right? Like, right. you don't have to play it to the full extent. Like, I don't have to write like rage-inducing clickbait, but like, if I yeah. want to make it on YouTube, I probably have to. Well, I actually have to do this, by the way. I have to take these uh, thumbnail images of me with like surprise face and like WTF face and stuff. <laughs> It's like, all right, that's my line. That's that's how far I'll go. And anything beyond that, that's not cool. But like, we'll go that far to play the game. All right. I can't wait (laughs) to see that. Am I going to get that thumbnail? You should definitely do that. We go viral. Yeah. Hopefully hopefully you'll see that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've talked about some contrarian opinions. I like to ask one question um, over and over because I find it's, it's really interesting what um, different views people have, but what do you believe to be true about content um, that most people would disagree with you about? I think that less is more. I'm trying to think about what are the kind of regular battles I have at Hack at Noon. This is more coming Trend. from a company that publishes 27,000 articles a year. It's hilarious, but go on. <laughs> I understand. I understand why it seems that way. But in terms of, I, I, I guess I'm talking more about campaigns and the, the kind of tactics employed around campaigns. I think that I often find myself fighting for fewer emails or fewer posts about marketing a certain thing or fewer ads. Um, I find myself fighting that fight or shorter dates for a campaign as well, like packing things into smaller packages or Mm. employing fewer channels and deploying uh, higher quality messages. So spending more time, you know, making a very high quality video that then, um, only gets to be distributed properly on certain channels, for example, or, you know, just, I often find myself arguing for scaling down so that the content quality can go up. Uh, So scaling down on the channels and the tactics and, and the campaign duration in order for the content assets and the quality of, of that copy to go up. If that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I found myself on, um, 
opposing sides of this argument all the time within my own head because I can see the case to be made for like if you if you put more out there, it's like you, there's an inherent unpredictability unpredictability in um, what's going to succeed. So like the more at bats you get, like the more chances for success. But then like if I look at what I consume, it's it's almost always very like high quality, long form, like very like um you know, thought out stuff. So I find myself always like debating this within my own head. So I don't know what the answer is, but I can see your point. I always try to imagine that my search results and my reading history is going to be published one day, like in some huge WikiLeaks. And it's, we're just going to live in this future where everything that we consume is known. <laughs> I really like that just for policing my own mind and what I consume. And as you say, as a result of that philosophy, I spend a lot, a lot of time looking for and filtering for high quality content and long forms. So I think more and more of us will be doing that as we are a hope in the, in the never ending flood of content. I hope that we'll, uh, we'll all be more mindful of our reading habits. Are you a dystopian fiction aficionado? <laughs> yeah. Mental model plus like that other book you told me about. It's yeah. Both yeah. terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, I really like the Soviet fiction. I do. Not, I mean, I wouldn't actually, yeah, no, I'm looking at my bookshelf now and I'm realizing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I used to read a lot of that back in college, like starting with the classics like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 yes. and all that stuff. It's been a minute. I, I can't read too many of them in a row, just in the same way that like when I was watching Black Mirror, I couldn't binge it because like I would have this, this uncomfortable feeling afterwards, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. That hit close to home for sure. I love the observation about 1984 being that uh, what George Orwell got wrong is that our uh, we would carry all of the cameras around in our pockets and that our biggest fear would be that nobody was taking photos of us. <laughs> that's, yeah, wild observation. I don't think I've heard of it like right. that, but yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Can't remember where I saw it. It's somewhere out there. And more terrifying when it's self-imposed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's that sour feeling in the stomach again. Yeah. So um, how did you get into content in the first place? I think (laughs) I was apparently a really uh, precocious child. I would be um, correcting sort of like advertising and, um, you know, we old school television, we had these forced ad breaks. And my mom always says that I was always kind of like trying to improve adverts and being like, they could have done that better, or this would have been a better way to do that um, or say that in particular language. Right. So I studied journalism as a natural sort of progression. And I think it was, must've been about 2009, which is what five, four years after Facebook kind of dropped, maybe, two or three years after Twitter and everybody was kind of shouting from the rooftops that journalism was dead. It was now dying. And I remember being 20 or 21 and really taking that to heart and being in the middle of a degree about journalism and really feeling like I needed to pivot out of that. I needed to uh, figure something else out. And I very quickly discovered that there was this new shiny thing called tech startups and they seemed really fun. Um, Another great documentary, the WeWork documentary that recently drops. I don't know if you watched that, but uh, great insights. Yeah. Just a very 
very much on par with my experience of early kind of uh, tech startups in the sort of mid 2010s or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, really great experiences in a lot of tech startups. I kind of moved from content creator to content strategist to head of content, head of marketing, VP editorial, VP growth kind of roles. So ended up leading a lot of creative teams of content creators as well, which uh, has been really fun to learn to do. And particularly in that post we work sort of people are kind of, and post-pandemic, people are requiring a much more authentic kind of leadership, particularly creatives, much more flexible kind of leadership. So I've really found that part of my career to be very rewarding. But at the end of the day, I'm a copywriter and always will be. I love microcopy. I love writing clever emails, particularly if they're automated. You know, like people don't expect to be surprised with delightful copy in a forgot my password email but it's mm -hmm. such an opportunity to like just have the best time and put your jokes in there and put your best stuff in there and really make a moment in somebody's day because the one email you know they're gonna have to open is your password forgot email you know and I really I get so much joy out of out of those kinds of uh writing tasks so no matter sort of how far I've gone I've always tried to keep close to keeping at least 20% of my week uh, spent on writing. I love that model coming from the experimentation and conversion optimization background of looking for underrated real estate um, where you could potentially make it delightful, you know, like thank you pages. I hadn't thought about the forgot password email. That's actually another very good one, but there's those little areas that nobody's thinking about. Everybody's thinking about like the value proposition on the homepage, you know, like these very big areas, but like these small areas might have actually more impact because they're forgotten about. How did Absolutely, you, I agree. How did you learn copy? Uh, Cause that's something that's like top of mind for me right now. Like I want to become amazing at copywriting. <sighs> <laughs> this might be a very unpopular opinion, but you know, it's such a difficult question for me to answer because it really came so naturally. It's something that I just thought, you know, I guess being good at banter in real life, maybe um, like having, having a bit of a, you know what, actually getting really good at copy, I think is about spending time on developing your own point of view because that is at the end of the day, what makes it really great is if you've got, you know, your kind of lens from which you see the world and that's the most unique thing. And that's, you know, there's no original thought left. There's no original sentence left to write in the world, but if you've got your own perspective, which nobody else has and your own little observations and the way that you see the world. So spending time really developing that, I would say is probably your best bet, assuming you've already got basic writing skills, of course, because you've you've got to have a have a good handle on the English language. I think that's a a prerequisite for sure. Mm -hmm. That's that's a great point. You, you mentioned earlier some copywriting blogs and resources too. Are there any that you'd uh, throw out there as being like worth checking out? Sure. So very good copy. Uh, I read a lot. Of course, copy hackers. I read. Um, what else? I, I'm a big fan of just reading things that are not necessarily about copywriting, but are examples of good copywriting. So uh, Morning Brews, Array of Newsletters mm -hmm. are, of course, really great. Um, Azim Azar writes the Exponential View newsletter. 
uh, and another newsletter called Charts of the Week. And I think that's another great content writing example newsletters these days are kind of where it where it's at right i realize now i'm realizing a lot of i'm realizing that i am uh citing a lot of newsletters as prime examples of of copywriting i think they're really having their moment uh, yeah in the same way i've talked uh, about this with my co-founders like I used to read and subscribe to a lot of blogs and now I mean, it's, there's still a couple I'll check out, but really a lot of it's on social. I get a lot of social stuff to filter through the good content, but then a lot of it's email uh, newsletters and sub stacks that I look towards. Yeah, for sure. Pretty interesting transition. Um, who are you chasing and what, what's your long game? You mean career wise for myself? Yeah. Where, where are you going? book deal i want a book deal you want to write a book <laughs> i want to like yeah i want to write many books retired in a log cabin um and yeah i think that i mean who doesn't right if at the end of the day uh particularly if you work in coffee i think we all probably harbor secret dreams to write a book but i think 100%. that 2022 is going to be the year i uh, i get started on that book what are you going to write about that's the problem. I'm not sure. <laughs> Have you seen uh, what Amanda Montel is doing? I think she's really clever. Uh -huh. She's been doing a, she's a linguist, I believe, and uh, recently published Cultish, for example, which is a book that is an analysis of fanatical language on social media and how it's kind of used and marketed to us uh, in various branded campaigns and things like that. And I just love that kind of thing. Like she got to spend a year analyzing content marketing and the way people talk and adapt and use language on social media and then wrote a book about it. What fun. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. We've, we've thought about writing a book here too, um, for our agency and we're kind of fumbling around with like what the angle is and what the outline is and all the specifics, but it's, it's definitely top of mind for me as well. And I do, I like your point, like everybody in content secretly harboring that vision because it, it does come up time and time again, for sure. I think so. Yeah. We just all want to tuck, tuck away in a little log cabin and write some books. Totally. Um, what is your production function? How do you manage your time and get so much done? Ooh. I have to, on the daily, decide over and over again that routine is good for me. <laughs> That's my biggest uh, personal challenge. I have to trust. I have to wake up. Often I wake up so excited about the day and so full of ideas because early morning is like a really great time for me. But I can race off and I can just go all day and, you know, do the whole like, coffee fuel as fuel and food thing and i did that through a large part of my my 20s <laughs> and it was very productive but now i have to trust that routine is gonna be the thing for me and so yeah i, I teach yoga on the side i practice a lot of yoga as a result kind of part of, part of the gig um that's just a fun side hobby that i have and that i gotta say it's cliched but it really does help uh keeps me keeps me going keeps me balanced reminds me to breathe because i just yeah i get very excited and new projects in particular i just want to work 18 hour days and, and keep going but i think at the end of the day it's people as well my team is just such a great uh sort of anchor 
and our contributors are amazing. And I think that's become, particularly during the pandemic, maybe it's easier for everybody, but it's really become highlighted for me that, you know, at the end of the day, we're not saving lives when we work in marketing, but you can really make a difference to a team member. You can really uh, be a vibe, you know, when you are on Slack, when you are, if you're lucky enough to go into the office every now and again. Um, yeah, I think being a being a good team member is a key driver at the moment for my day-to-day. I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but I like that you highlighted the like taking care of yourself to bring your best self to work. Um, Cause I find now that I'm in a leadership role um, and running the agency, um, the energy I bring to meetings and like to the team is often more impactful than any, any words I could write or any actually tasks I could do. So it sounds yes. like yoga is a, a really key piece of that for you. Absolutely. And I've been realizing that so much lately, you've really hit on something I think about a lot because I've just I've seen it throughout my career. The power of particularly if you have a modicum of influence or you know leadership role in a, within an organization, the power of the energy that you bring to a room to impact so many other people. It's just the most important thing that you can do. It, you know, you can forget everything else, forget the plans, forget the sheets, throw them out the window. If you're not bringing the right kind of feeling into a room or a zoom call (laughs) these days then work's not going to get done in the way that you want it to get done for sure yeah i like your emphasis on routine too because i really resonated with um that like i just want to go go work 18 hour days like i'll Mm. i'll do that for like weeks on end and then like it'll just hit me one week. I'm like completely exhausted, semi burnt out, just an emotional wreck. And I'm like, Oh wow. I didn't process anything. (laughs) I didn't take any time for myself. So I think, yeah, that, that um, routine, like doing yoga, you know, I don't know how often you do it, but like if you know, you do it two, three times a week, I feel like that could, you know, give you some of that balance. For sure. Yeah. I think anything, you know, whether it's your like stupid little walks for your mental health that you got to do, like it can be the tiniest thing. It's just making sure that there's almost like creating space between the urge to run and the reaction and the, you know, instinctive response and just a little bit of thought. And then I often find that I might still want to go and work, maybe not an 18 hour day, but a 12 hour day, but mm-hmm. I'll do it with more intention and I'll be coming from a place that's just a little bit more in in balance and coming from coming from a wider perspective a wider mind you know rather than just like running ahead full steam yeah i like that um so we're coming up on time i wanted to ask if there was anything that i didn't ask that you would want to talk about Mm. i think i managed to drop everything in there my biggest thing that i knew i wanted to get in there was definitely talking about thinking about content creation more because that's my little personal mission that I'm on at the moment. I really want to encourage every writer, particularly in the industry, every creator to not just fill a content calendar up with things that you need to do to tick it off and just really start to think about the content that we're putting out there. I think that's my, if I could put anything on a billboard right now, that would be it. So I think I pretty much covered that. I love that. That's a great finish. And then where can people go to find you online? 
Oh, Hackanoon exclusively, I think. Uh, I really am so inconsistent at the social, so I won't encourage anybody to to find me there. But I write fairly consistently on Hackanoon.com, so you can just follow Natasha Nell on Hackanoon, subscribe to my tag, or just visit Hackanoon and you'll see me around. Amazing. Thanks so much, Natasha. Cool. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>